Iced Coffee has the best listeners. You won't believe the quality of the listeners. Antarctic history buffs may wonder at my dedicating the time I've allocated to a party that didn't travel astonishing distances, as per Amundsen, didn't endure an exciting sequence of adventures straight out of Boy's Own, as per Shackleton, and who didn't die, going on to become national martyrs, as Scott and Company did. The reason the tale of the Eastern Party holds my attention is it's a story of survival against the slow, grinding enemies of hunger, cold and isolation in one spot and at fixed odds. It's a tale so lacking in glamour that many volumes on Antarctic history, even some of those dedicated to Scott's BAE, fail to mention it. Lieutenant and later Admiral Sir Edward Evans gave it a chapter in South with Scott and Ponting gave it a paragraph in the Great White South. It's also worth some time and energy because it illustrates some dynamics between naval officers and naval ratings that anyone without military experience or a lifetime's worth of dealing with the British class system might find unsettlingly heartless. I've known the bare bones of this story since I first read the Reader's Digest book, Antarctica, The Extraordinary History of Man's Conquest of the Frozen Continent, at the age of 12. But two more recent publications... Catherine Lambert's 2002 efforts, To Hell with a Capital H, and Meredith Hooper's The Longest Winter in 2010, made extensive use of the diaries of the participants, fleshing out my understanding of what the Eastern Party experienced and placing them high in my esteem in terms of hard-as-nails survival tales. Scott's third in command on the BAE Mark III, Lieutenant Victor Campbell, was tasked with taking a party of six to the eastern end of the Ross Sea to spend a year exploring and surveying Edward VII land, the area first sighted by Scott in 1902 during his balloon ascent above the barrier and named after the monarch reigning at the time of that expedition, King Edward's death in March 1910 having resulted in King George VI. Selecting his team while in transit, Campbell chose Navy Surgeon Murray Levick as his second in command, giving the team the medical experience likely necessary for a year in isolation, and geologist Raymond Priestley to oversee the scientific program. From the mess deck, Senior Petty Officer George Abbott, Petty Officer Frank Browning, and Seaman Harry Dickerson made up the balance. Dr Levick selected ahead of Dr. Atkinson for his athleticism, also brought to the party a deep knowledge of nutritional science, which proved a decisive factor in the eventual survival of the entire party. Levick also served as the party photographer, receiving instruction from Herbert Ponting. Raymond Priestley, the only Antarctic veteran in the mix, gave the team valuable sledging experience and a geologist's meticulous approach to the range of measurements and observations in his care. In addition to geologizing, he would make the meteorological observations and collect biota. George Abbott, a torpedo instructor and physical drill trainer in his usual duties, was selected for his prowess as a carpenter. 
Browning came on board as a generally useful hand with a cheerful disposition, and Dickerson was sought out as the party cook. The six began squirrelling away stores they thought might prove useful in the project, and which the main body might not allow them, if sought through the proper channels. Lieutenant Evans wrote of the Eastern Party's leader, Campbell had the face of an angel and the heart of a hornet. With the most refined and innocent smile, he would come up to me and ask whether the Eastern Party could have a small amount of this or that luxury. Of course I would agree, and sure enough, Bowers would tell me that Campbell had already appropriated a far greater share than he was ever entitled to of the commodity in question. This happened again and again, but the refined smile was irresistible. The general sentiment aboard the Terranova held that nothing should be left lying around when a member of the Eastern Party came near, and, while mostly this stood as a mild ribbing, Campbell did encourage his men to ensure their endeavour would not be left wanting by the expedition focus on the main shore base and the polar foray. Unfortunately for Campbell, some of the material he thought he'd gotten past the quartermaster remained with the ship when the Eastern Party went ashore, the lieutenant having forgotten where all of his stashes lay. While ashore at Cape Evans, Campbell led Priestley and Levick in a sledging journey to Cape Royds. Ostensibly a geology outing and sledge team bonding exercise, visiting Cape Royds also offered an opportunity to grab a primer stove from the equipment left behind when the Nimrod departed in 1908. Returning to his former home unsettled Priestley, who found the place so little changed since he last walked out the door that he kept expecting familiar faces to show up at any moment, and he felt particularly haunted by the absence of Bertram Armitage. Unable to reintegrate to his old life on his return to Melbourne following the BAE under Shackleton, Bertram Armitage committed suicide at the Melbourne Club in March 1910. Priestley and Armitage had spent their final hours together at the hut, putting things in the order the trio now found them, two years later. The trio returned to Cape Evans, the Terra Nova's dramatic grounding and Pennell's successful efforts to unground her occurring in their absence. Under Campbell's command, the Terra Nova, after ferrying goods for the depot party and landing the Western Geological Party at Butter Point, where Priestley helped them locate a depot left for Edgeworth David and Company during his previous visit to Antarctica, carried the Eastern Party and their two shabby ponies, swapped out for the prime examples of the crocs that Oates assigned them on Scott's countermand, north past Cape Bird and east toward King Edward VII land on the 29th of January 1911. The dangers of landing on the margin of the floating glacial ice as a coast on which to establish operations were reinforced in the transit east in the following days as icebergs carved from the barrier. A southeasterly wind and adverse currents indicated a course further north and the Terra Nova lost sight of the barrier until nearing Cape Colbeck, thought the most likely stepping off point for their eastern sojourn. Sea ice prevented their approach and the Terra Nova turned west again on the 3rd of February tracing the barrier as close as safety allowed. Campbell, eager to make his mark exploring untrod territory, wanted to get ashore anywhere the barrier offered scope to sledge to King Edward VII land. Priestley, seasick in the finest traditions of great scientists, 
wanted to find somewhere his rock collecting wouldn't take second place to sledging. The closer they landed to rocks, the better, in his book. But he didn't hold out much hope along the barrier, having sailed it with Shackleton in 1907 and not found anywhere suitable. Dr Levick didn't care where they landed, only wanting to get ashore and get started. So the search for a barrier landing site was on, but not for long. On reaching the Bay of Wales, the large embayment reported by Shackleton and confirmed by Raymond Priestley, though still doubted by Scott and others, turned out to be a reality. In addition to vindicating Shackleton's decision to work in McMurdo Sound, the Bay of Wales gave the Britons a surprise in the form of the Fram. Cagey and resentful in their initial contact, the British felt put out by this Norwegian presence in what they considered their territory. Amundsen's silence over his southern ambitions still rankled their sensibilities as underhanded and sly, and his presence in eastern Antarctica seemed a further dent to good sporting form. Amundsen impressed the British team a great deal with a display of dog handling in which he tore toward the barrier at full tilt, turning his dogs a hair's breadth from the ice edge before whistling the team to a halt and turning his sledge over to act as an anchor before making his way to their mooring. Little did the Brits know, this was a staged spectacle, geared to impress them, and it worked. Moods turned more convivial after a lunch at the Norwegian camp on the barrier, Framheim, and a dinner on the Terra Nova. Mutual respect may have given rise to friendships, if given time. Having not landed since Madeira, the Norwegians gratefully accepted a bundle of the most recent newspapers from Australia and New Zealand, and updated chronometer readings were similarly well received by the Fram's officers. The British team felt impressed by the number of dogs in the Norwegian camp, and the disciplined manner in which their counterparts drove them. Amundsen, seeing their amazement, gained an estimate of the dog-driving abilities of Scott's team. Campbell, obfuscating, told Amundsen that one of the sledge tractors was already on terra firma, but someone else on the Terra Nova party let slip that the terror in question lay deep beneath the waters of McMurdo Sound, allaying Amundsen's initial alarm that the Brits might already have crossed the barrier. Campbell didn't think much of the Framheim's position on the barrier, but recognised the Bay of Wales as the best landing site so far observed along the barrier. If they were to work in Edward VII land this season, they would have to share the Norwegians' path onto the ice. Amundsen made it clear that the British party were welcome to establish their base of operations adjacent to his own and to winter in company with the Norwegians, but Lieutenant Campbell, while keen to take up the offer for the opportunity to work in King Edward VII land, saw merit in the arguments put forward by Levick and Lieutenant Wilfred Bruce, Scott's brother-in-law that they should operate independent of Scott's main competitor, and declined. Priestley took a similar line that it would be un-British to trench of their country for winter quarters, but his mind was likely on finding somewhere less distant from the nearest rocks than it was on honour and probity in international relations. Sailing west again on the 4th, the Terra Nova stayed in close to the barrier, with Campbell still hoping to find a landing site within reach of his eastern goal, and Priestley grew more anxious 
as his sledging distance v rock sample heuristic skewed against his wishes. Promising looking apertures in the ice turned out to be riddled with crevasses, and on the 5th, pressed for time by the Terranova's coal budget, Campbell gave up on King Edward VII land. The Terranova returned to Cape Evans to pass on word of Amundsen's location and activities. Those ashore felt livid and didn't have lunch at Framheim to calm them down. The short-sighted Cherry Garrard, the BAE member I'd put the least money on to win a fistfight against Norwegian seamen, wanted to sail back to the Bay of Wales and... something... something brave and honourable and British, no doubt. But fortunately for him in international relations, the coal situation on the ship precluded showing the Scandinavian oiks what for. Campbell, deciding that operating in Victoria land stood as the party's only remaining option, ordered the two ponies, likely a useless hindrance in the Admiralty Mountains, put ashore. The sea ice being entirely gone during this visit to Cape Evans, the crew lowered the ponies into the water. Jehu swam ashore, led by a dinghy, but Hackenschmidt, notably the most ornery of all the ponies, lay on his back, forcing the boat to tow him to shore, the pony dying a week after the experience. Levick and Browning skied to Hut Point to drop off extra stores, but Browning's first outing on skis didn't go well. Levick, fancying himself an expert at this new skill, though Graun didn't think any of the Brits had the fundamentals in hand yet, felt extreme frustration at the slow progress caused by Browning's inexperience and, to his extreme chagrin, found Campbell on the brink of sending out a search party when they returned to Cape Evans. Levick resented Browning for some time after this, blaming him for what Levick perceived as an unwarranted blue against him in his first leadership role of the expedition. As far as I can tell, Browning couldn't care less. With Cape Adair already surveyed and Robertson Bay chartered by the first BAE under Carsten Borkrevink, Campbell didn't see much mileage in even visiting, but with time running out and eager to do something other than spend the winter at Cape Evans or in New Zealand with the Terra Nova, he accepted the need to look to put the Eastern Party ashore somewhere over that way. The Terranova headed to the Erebus Ice Tongue to water the ship, Abbott falling into the sea when the part of the glacier he stood on to pass over the ice broke away, Wilfred Bruce lifting him from the water in time to prevent the jostling sea ice from crushing him. Sailing north once more on the 9th of February, the Terranova sailed past Cape Adair, Campbell holding out hope of finding a more promising, as yet untouched, landing site. Backtracking to Coolman Island was considered, as no work had yet been carried out there, but if ice blocked the ship's path at any point, the Eastern Party would have to spend the winter in New Zealand. With coal in short supply before the ship needed to head west to survey the coast, and with Campbell unwilling to risk a shot at Coolman Island, Cape Adair turned into the only option, a particularly galling one in that Campbell turned down the opportunity to land at the Bay of Wales mostly as a matter of decorum rather than necessity, forcing this even less palatable necessity on him. A storm then prevented them from making a landing, holding them a hundred nautical miles north of the Cape, with the Terra Nova heaved to against large waves until the 15th, 
the boats landed men and 30 tons of stores in swell breaking on a shore strewn with boulder-sized ice blocks. Under the guidance of the ship's carpenter, Davies, the Eastern Party, they only became known as the Northern Party in London after telegrams from Littleton in 1912, let the expedition agent know of the altered circumstances. Erected the frame of their hut by the beginning of March. While Priestley worked at digging a drainage ditch below the hut floor, Levick attempted to null the smell of centuries of accumulated penguin shit using calcium chloride. Using this chemical on urea-impregnated surfaces allowed the release of chlorine gas. Levick blinded himself temporarily, and was lucky at that. Slated for collection in late February, after the Terranova resupplied Cape Evans, Campbell, in handing command of the Terranova to Pennell, arranged a collection as the ship headed south, adding at least an extra month to any work afforded by a relocation in 1912. After the Terranova departed to make its way west to survey the as-yet-unseen coast towards the Daly Land, Petty Officer Abbott took on the lead carpenter duties, acting as foreman in the finishing of the new hut and the patching up of the two smaller buildings left behind by Borkrovink and Company, using a tarpaulin to replace the missing roof of the store's hut. Finding the stove they brought with them sufficient for cooking but not for heating the hut, they skewered the larger stove from Borkrovink's living quarters. Dogged down by steel horses attached to anchors concreted into the beach gravel, the strength of the new hut came under test on March the 19th, when a blizzard blew the anemometer apart with a gust of 84 knots. Stronger gusts were felt trying to lift the entire hut from the ground, though the strength of those gusts went unrecorded due to the anemometer being gust-busted. The following day, all hands brought stores from above the high tide line, previously thought safe, up to the hut, as huge surf threatened to wash away those materials not immediately needed at the hut site on arrival, and therefore left by the shore. Campbell, a martinet more eager to see naval discipline maintained than even Scott, granted priestly nominal officer status, and maintained the disparity between wardroom and mess deck, even though the three men on either side of that divide were living cheek by jowl with their counterparts in a tiny hut in the middle of fucking nowhere. Both Priestley and Levick found Campbell irritable and prone to sulking, and both thought his treatment of the ratings too harsh. Even petty misdemeanours being written up in the expedition log, going on the permanent career record of the seamen in question. Some ascribe this to the forced inactivity he experienced at Cape Adair, the area being already surveyed over a decade earlier. Campbell's main duties were confined to the dull, cold, fiddly magnetic measurements. Others consider his naval discipline the mainstay of the mental well-being of the team, citing that naval ratings are trained to expect and accept whatever comes from their officers, as justifying his hard line. Or it could be that Campbell was an asshole. I've often wondered, of the people in my life who hold such authority, whether they are good at their job because they are assholes, or assholes because the job requires it of them. Whatever the reason, Campbell stands out as a prickly character, 
drawing criticism for fighting with Priestley in front of the men. For shame. Standards must be upheld. And for treating the ratings many ate, worked and slept with as so much below him that he resented not having the space and resources to establish a distinct wardroom and mess deck as occurred at Cape Evans. Keep in mind that these ratings, selected from hundreds, were highly intelligent, well-read, experienced men of the world, not the Neanderthal bogans some officers seem to think all other ranks comprise. Not everyone held such opinions of Campbell as Levick and Priestley, Frank Debenham writing of him as a martinet on deck and good company below it, so perhaps he was more in the mould of a professional asshole, becoming affable when off the clock. Levick occupied himself with quartermaster duties, zoology and photography, making a darkroom in a cupboard in one of Borkrevink's huts. Priestley geologised and made meteorological observations, though everyone had to take their turn heading out to the instruments at the meteorological screen to sustain the two-hourly observation routine established by Borkrevink. Heavy sleeping Levick often failed to wake and take his turn leading Campbell to offer a prize for the best alarm clock anyone could design. Browning fashioned his successful entry from a candle with a known rate of burn, a piece of string which would burn through as the candle flame reached it, and a bamboo cane held in tension by the string and attached to a switch on a phonograph which, when activated, played The Flower Song from Carmen. Browning's Carusophone serves as only one example of the rating's ingenuity. Abbott fashioned kayaks out of canvas and curtain material sealed with seal blubber. When drawn over the frame of a sledge, these served well enough to transport men and materials across stretches of open water. Abbott also made a punching ball in Borkrevink's hut and fashioned fencing equipment to encourage a fitness regimen through the winter months. Browning and Abbott took great interest in the scientific work and enthusiastically learnt to make themselves useful in all projects, Priestley later commenting that the scope and scale of the science carried out could only be accomplished at the expense of a great portion of the little leisure time which they might have claimed for themselves. Dickerson, acting as cook and baker, didn't get much opportunity to work outdoors, and Campbell instituted a rotor in which Browning and Abbott traded duties with him, such that he began getting three days outdoor work a week to keep him sledging fit, though the other ratings didn't think much of the galley work. On the 27th of March, Priestley led a marine life collecting trip in the Pram, a small dinghy of Norwegian design. Clawing their way through loose pack with a shovel, the nets and traps didn't yield much compared to Bernacki's prior efforts, and Priestley, not especially interested in the first place, gave up on the game with just a handful of invertebrates in hand. The Eastern Party saw the last of the sun on May the 17th, and frequent storms tested the solidity of their accommodation and made the trek to the meteorological screen and back a challenge, several stand-in meteorologists finding their way home by the lifeline in zero visibility and pelted by any loose object the wind could catch hold of. Everyone reassessed their opinion of Borkrevink a little. Where previously they took his account, first on the Antarctic continent, with a large helping of salt, 
Their first-hand experience of the weather they'd previously thought the Norwegian was making up forced a reappraisal. Priestley took to working at night, unfazed by the lower temperature the hut reached when no one stoked the stove, and relieved to train his mind on his analyses and reports without the bustle of other work around him. He also published the single edition, six-print run of The A Daily Mail and Cape Adair Times, featuring pseudonymous contributions from all party members. Only one remaining edition is known, and this resides at the Scott Polar Institute, which Priestley helped found in 1920 at Cambridge with his friend and colleague, Frank Debenham. Dr Levick insisted on keeping the hut well aired, opening all apertures for several minutes a day, other than during inclement weather. While this caused some friction with Campbell, who preferred the hut kept at a temperature the others found uncomfortably warm, the benefits of ventilation were highlighted on June the 15th, when Browning returned to the hut, collapsing on the floor, after working in Borkerving's hut with the stove on. While at work, his candle went out. He relit it, and it went out again. He felt sick, and made his way back to the living quarters, and made the dramatic entrance already recounted. Carbon monoxide poisoning from incomplete combustion of coal in the stove due to poor ventilation came Levick's diagnosis, justifying his fussing about airing the hut regularly. It's during the winter dark that naval discipline came into its own, in my eyes. Insisting that everyone bathe at least once a week and take a snow rub every morning helped to prevent the squalor Bernacki recorded during his winter at Cape Adair. Fetching ice untainted by penguin guano required a long trek, making fresh water beyond that needed for cooking and beverages a luxury, but regular shaving remained part of everyone's routine. Also preventing Borkrovink levels of squalor, the shipboard habit of a weekly scrub-out. The ratings asked the officers to clear out under their beds and vacate the hut, before going over the whole place. Regular routine helped keep the toastiness at bay, though a flare-up between Campbell and Levick threatened the equanimity. Campbell, second mate on the Terranova during the transit south, and therefore in charge of the coal-trimming roster, contested Levick's claim to have trimmed coal twice a week throughout the voyage. Digression time. Trimming coal accounts for everything between bunkering the fuel in port through to sending it down the chute for the stokers to shovel into the fires. With shovel and barrow, the trimmers spend long, dusty, poorly lit hours in the bunkers, ensuring the coal remains evenly distributed, thereby preventing a list in the ship, and supply the stokers at the appropriate time and in the correct quantity. It's the trimmers who are tasked with putting out coal fires, either by flooding a bunker with water or by moving the burning coal to the stokers as quickly as possible, depending on how far the fire is progressed. Trimming is a shit job all hands on the Terranova took in their turn, but Campbell thought Levick's claim constituted an attempt to give himself unwarranted props for hard yards, and the two nearly fell out over it, again displaying undecorous acrimony in front of the other ranks. Levick, the nearest thing the team fielded to a psychologist, spoke to Campbell privately, citing the upcoming sledging season as likely tempering his leader's frustrations and mentioning a hope that the big work lying before them might put such trifling disagreements in perspective. 
Campbell calmed down, and that seemed an end to the worst of the winter friction. Campbell set his sights on Cape North and Cape Wood, left unexplored by Borkrevink due to his reservations about crossing the local sea ice. Anytime anyone suggested heading that way, Borkrevink nixed the suggestion, much to Benaki's frustration, thereby leaving Campbell his best hope of exploring untrod ground while stuck at Cape Adair. Campbell nominated two sledging teams, himself, Priestley and Abbott, as the survey and geological group, and Levick, Browning and Dickerson as the support team. In Campbell's plan, both groups would head out together with Levick's group returning to the hut to collect additional supplies to depot at the point Campbell's group carried on without them. Sledging preparations took hold in late July, taking care of any toastiness or ennui, as the six made their equipment and prepared the stores they would need for their looming project. Priestley, concerned about sledging inexperience among his colleagues, encouraged Campbell to order trial excursions to ensure each team operated effectively. Campbell's own party headed out on the sea ice on the 29th of July, making for Duke of York Island. Poor weather kept the party out longer than expected, though the return of the sun on the 31st helped buoy any spirits laid low by sudden blizzards and nights spent making running tent rearrangements as the wind lifted first this margin of their haven's floor, then that. Abbott, usually being the unlucky punter, sent outside to reinforce the guy ropes and snow blocks, holding the trio down against the wind. A hurricane force wind of over 100 knots gave Levick concerns about the sledging party, and he headed out on the 4th of August to reconnoitre, finding them making their way back across the ice without their sledge, having depoted their materials once in striking range of the hut, eager to get back and get warm. Levick, seeing the state of the trio after their week of outdoor living, asked that one of the other officers join his team to lend some experience. Neither Campbell or Priestley felt much like heading back out on the sea ice and played a word game to determine who got to stay home. Priestley won, but after the fact realised he misspelled his entry and unable to accept something being wrong, spoke up about his invalid victory. Levick received Priestley gratefully for his trial trek, departing the hut on the 8th of August, collecting the depoted sledge on the outward stretch. A less eventful introduction to sledging saw the second party return to the hut on the 11th of August. Hurricane force winds again threatened the hut on the 15th, and on turning out to assess the damage after the storm, the eastern party found Robertson Bay almost empty of sea ice. The solid three-foot footing on which their sledging ambitions rested blew out to sea, putting paid to the shortcut to Campbell's goals and suddenly requiring hundreds of extra miles of sledging on newly formed sea ice close enough to the shoreline to require only a short dash to the safety of terra firma if the surface proved unsafe. On August 25th, even this newly limited sledging came under threat as the newly frozen young sea ice departed and that which remained came under attack by a heavy swell. Campbell altered the sledging plan to one party, adding Dickerson to his own team and departing the hut on the 8th of September, with Levick and Browning heading out only as far as Warning Glacier, named by Borkrevink for the snow that blew off it obscuring it from view as a blizzard swept towards the cape, 
for a brief geologize. A three-day storm pinned Levick and Browning at the glacier, the ice on which their tent lay buckling and cracking unnervingly as the sea beneath it heaved. The two returned to the hut when the weather allowed and, each carrying injuries from their outing, stayed close to home for the next weeks. Levick noted in his diary that his contempt for Browning, formed on their first ski trip together to Hut Point, fell away over time and that their time alone saw his regard for the rating soar. Keep in mind that the seamen were selected for their intelligence and ability to cooperate, so it's hardly surprising that the officers should find them easy company. The reverse wasn't necessarily true, but the ratings couldn't openly express their opinions of officers without risking being written up for insubordination, so it's only in their diaries that you get some idea of who thought what of whom on that front. Minor digression. Dickerson surprised Priestley late one night with a slice of blackberry tart he baked on the sly for Browning's birthday. Priestley, an outsider among the officers for his being a civilian, the youngest, the scientist, a grammar school graduate, Campbell went to Eton and Levick went to St Paul's, and a Nimrod veteran, seems to have garnered more regard from the ratings than Campbell or Levick, and he felt privileged to see this small, pie-segment-shaped window into the secret lives of the other ranks. Campbell's party continued around the shore of Robertson Bay, entirely dodging the weather that pinned Levick and Browning down at Warning Glacier, toward Cape North. The sledging came to an end at Cape Barrow, where a seal, gnawing its way up to a fresh breath of air from below, alerted the team to the thinness of the ice on which they stood. They turned back for the hut, arriving on the 18th of September. Levick returned to Warning Glacier with Priestley, Browning and Dickerson, where the geology and photography conducted between storms constituted, in Priestley's eyes, the most valuable work of the Eastern Party to date, returning to the hut for an immediate turnaround for Campbell's big push on October 4th. Again, Levick and Browning split off from the main party, this time exploring Cape Wood before returning to the hut on the 13th, while Campbell's group carried on for Cape North. Once more, thin ice at Cape Barrow forced a halt. Desperate to break new ground, Campbell sought a path onto the plateau, but each glacier the team examined proved too steep and too crevassed to allow them access to the interior, and Campbell, dispirited, led them back to the hut on the 20th of October. The exploration of Cape Adair and its surrounds at an end. Work from then on focused on adding to the biological and geological collections and continuing the magnetic and meteorological series. While Campbell chafed at the forced inactivity and his self-perceived failure in light of his orders, Levick made notes and photographs on penguin biology, laying the foundations for his publication Antarctic Penguins. Though he found the sexual antics of some of the animals so depraved, he recorded his notes on the axe in question in ancient Greek, so only an educated man might read them, saving any plebs reading his journal from being corrupted by recountings of penguin rape and penguin necrophilia. The Natural History Museum deemed Levick's paper on the behaviour too shocking for general publication, but did circulate 100 copies, in a plain brown wrapper, to a select group of scientists. An avalanche on the 11th of December killed a large number of Adelie penguins, and all hands turned to the unpleasant work of mercy killing those animals too injured to survive, 
collecting many for the pot, but the distress of the survivors and the horror of the many tiny corpses chastened even those who never felt any qualms about killing the birds. Campbell ordered a camp at the peak of the Cape Adair headland established, and a permanent lookout for the ship started. Three pairs, each comprising an officer and a rating, took 48-hour watches, communicating with the hut via semaphore. In his downtime at the heights, Browning tidied up Nikolai Hansen's gravesite, picking out the scientist's name with white granite and black basalt. Browning was on duty on the 3rd of January when the Terra Nova came in view and he raised the signal flag, kicking off the rush to pack kit and lug it to the shore. The Terra Nova put out three boats and a loading party put ashore to help Campbell's men load out. The eastern party loaded rocks, personal gear and sledging equipment into the boats in the heavy shore break. The strong currents and uneven seafloor of the bay made Pennell wary. Wanting to avoid grounding on an uncharted pinnacle, he put out to sea when the wind moved loose pack into the bay. The loading party spent a cramped night among the hut residents, and a rushed final effort to get aboard and get the Terranova clear of any danger the following day saw some of the scientific collections and much equipment left ashore, including the sledge meters. The Terranova, carrying mules to replace the ponies and a fresh batch of 14 dogs, took the Eastern Party southward while the crew and correspondents from home got them up to speed on news from the outside world, while Carpenter Davies made a replacement sledge meter from a depth sounding recorder, though this rendered distance measurements in fathoms rather than feet. With McMurdo Sound well explored between Hut Point and the Drygalski Ice Tongue, Campbell saw his last chance to bring Scott something of geographic significance in the glaciers to the north of the Drygalski, hoping to land at Wood Bay, but again, time ran short. Campbell needed to land by the 8th of January because the Terra Nova's schedule included a rendezvous with the Second Western Geological Party. Evans Coves, named after Captain Frederick Evans, commander of the Nimrod during Shackleton's residence in the region, promised the only interesting geology for Priestley and unsurveyed land for Campbell that the Terra Nova could reach under that schedule. Pennell, working against the clock and adverse ice conditions, landed the party slightly northeast of Evans Coves, at a site they at first named Moraine Depot. Originally planning a large depot to guard against all contingencies, but stymied by a mile and a half of sea ice that required stores be sledged ashore, Campbell, eager to not delay the ship, ordered only enough material for a six-week sledge journey and a month of spares be landed, confident of the return of the Terra Nova in mid-February. Sledging up the Melbourne Glacier, small crevasses gradually gave way to larger, more dangerous ones. Sticky surfaces forced regular relaying, and storms forced delays, several days being lost sitting in the tents. Spying worse crevasse fields further ahead, Campbell split the party, taking Priestley and Dickerson on a geology and surveying kick down the western side of the glacier, and sending Levick, Browning and Abbott down the eastern side. Campbell and Levick crossed their wires regarding the rendezvous point, and the party lost three days, with each sledge team awaiting the arrival of their counterparts in different places. 
Eventually, the two teams spotted each other through binoculars, and Campbell became livid over the time lost to inaction, and led his team away, leaving a terse message for Levick, who spent two days in a crevasse maze trying to reach his leader's former camp. The sledge, heavy enough to drag all three men harnessed to it with it, nearly broke through a snow bridge over a crevasse large enough to kill them. Levick expressed relief that this scare came as they neared the end of their trek, as the same event early in the attempt to cross the glacier might have made them more timid and the crossing longer. Hindsight Optimism While Levick's sledge played catch-up, Campbell and Priestley discovered a significant fossil of a pine tree trunk, the first fossil of its kind to come to light in Antarctica. This relative of the monkey puzzle tree, later named Oricaria priestleyi, demonstrated Antarctica once enjoyed a climate milder than that of present-day Britain, and buoyed both officers' moods. Diaries recorded no mention of Campbell's anger over the failed rendezvous when Levick's team caught up on the 31st of January, so perhaps the fossil, in addition to recounting the region's past climate, helped Campbell forgive the misunderstanding, which I don't think it's actually possible to pin entirely on Levick in the first place. With two weeks in hand before the ship returned, the officers decided it best to return to their depot camp and geologise the shore, rather than press on with glacier work, and the sledges reached Evans Coves on the 6th of February. An undisturbed note for Debenham indicated the second Western Geological Party didn't visit during their time on the glaciers, and this caused some concern. Either the Terranova didn't collect the second Western Geological Party, or couldn't return to Evans Coves. Abbott found some fossil polychaete tubes in a rock formation above the camp, adding evidence to Priestley's idea that sea level once reached higher than at present. Levick found a penguin rookery and attendant skewery to the south, and an apparent seal's graveyard, with several mummified specimens of Waddell and crab-eaters, including two suckling young in close proximity to camp. By mid-month, with the cove clear of ice, but regular southerly blows bringing snow cover, Campbell asked Priestley to begin paying close heed to food allocations, his prudence proving well warranted, as the next month brought no sighting of the Terra Nova. False sightings on two occasions raised hopes briefly, but overall the mood sank as time passed. For the first time since Nordenskjold waited in vain for Larsen to show up on the Antarctic, ship version, an Antarctic shore party lost hope that their ship might arrive and began making arrangements for winter. All those at Evans Coves, rude that sea ice prevented their landing with the large cache of stores Campbell originally planned for the site. Besides insufficient food to see them through the dark months, their tents, already showing the strain of their many excursions, wouldn't last long in sustained blizzard conditions, and their clothing and bedding inappropriate for outdoor life in the Antarctic winter when new, wouldn't hold up either. Keeping an eye on the horizon for any sign of the ship, Campbell set his men to establishing a camp fit to protect them from the weather. Campbell and Priestley selected a snowdrift on an island a mile and a half from their depot camp. Levick, Browning and Abbott remained at the depot to watch for the ship and to begin killing as much of the local wildlife as possible. Levick estimating a stock of 20 seals, the minimum necessary to last the six men through the winter darkness. 
Campbell, Priestley and Dickerson set to work with Priestley's geologists' hammers, digging out a shelter in the drift of consolidated snow or neve. In episode 26, I mentioned the relief the crew of the Antarctic ship version felt when the pressure of the sea ice pinching their vessel forced the decision to abandon ship, the hopeful uncertainty resolving to dire certainty, taking a weight from their minds and indicating their next course of action clearly. Levick records the uncertainty of the Eastern Party's predicament similarly weighing on his mind during the four-week period of preparation. The order to lay in food, coming only once Campbell gave up hope of the Terra Nova arriving to relieve them, came after the penguins, their chicks fully-fledged and able to swim and hunt, and the seals began departing for their respective winter abodes. The trio of butchers only managed a larder of eight seals and 100 birds. On the 18th of March, hurricane force winds broke the tent poles in Levick's team's tent. Abbott and Levick got their windproof gear on and tried to find a space to pitch the spare tent, but with no appropriate ground available, had little chance of successfully pitching a tent in the wind anyway. They crawled back to join Browning under the flapping canvas, eating frozen seal meat through the day, unable to sit up, let alone to get the primus stove going. They stuck to their sleeping bags under constant buffeting from the unstayed tent sides until Levick decided to risk a bolt to the ice cave. Piling rocks on the tent to preserve the sleeping bags and other equipment therein from blowing away, the three men spent an hour and a half struggling over the boulders and polished ice between the depot camp and their new winter quarters. Campbell, Priestley and Dickerson, already ensconced in the cave, shared their sleeping bags, cooked up a hoosh and treated the various frost nips their companions sported. The troglodyte life began. The cave, still under construction through early April, eventually comprised a sleeping quarters, a galley, a latrine, and a storeroom. The outer door was closed off with a sealskin and sacking. Inner doors, comprising packing case jams and lentils with sacking flaps, blocked the passageway between the latrine and the other spaces, keeping the worst of the weather away from the main living spaces. Pebbles offered some floor drainage, and layers of dried seaweed and the tent floor cloths gave some insulation from the ground. Blocks of loose snow, offering greater insulation than the more consolidated neve from which they carved the cave, lined the walls. The three officers occupied one side of the sleeping quarters, and the three ratings the other. At nine foot by twelve foot, and only five and a half foot high, too low to stand up straight, but carving the ceiling any higher risked weakening the crust required to keep the weather out. You'd imagine circumstances lowered social barriers, but Campbell insisted everyone imagine a wall between the officers and the men. Conversations from the other side of the wall were to be ignored, with no action taken, even if someone gave voice to personal slander. Even Scott didn't carry naval tradition to this extent, as the owner's companionable travels with petty officers Evans and Lashley demonstrated. I've seen some people defend Campbell as saving the entire party by a strict adherence to established mores and discipline, but I think this degree of control over others, an indication of a small man driven to express the only power he still held over his situation, and it reads as petty and mean 
to continue to treat Abbott, Dickerson and Browning as lesser beings due to social status based largely on their ancestry. Someone taking issue with my position on this once argued that a more egalitarian approach to the situation might have left the men uncomfortable, being treated as equals. But that's a straw man gambit. I only ever call for people to be treated as people, and military discipline doesn't do that. A necessity in wartime and training for wartime, but perhaps not so much when fighting elemental enemies rather than human ones. The limited supply of paraffin for the primer stove required some ingenious efforts at crafting a blubber stove, blubber forming both a large part of their food and the fuel by which they cooked it. Even the most efficient blubber stove produces sooty, black smoke, and the Eastern Party loathed their rostered turn in the galley, as the close quarters combined with less than ideal blubber stoves combined to generate dense clouds of the soot, which they called smitch, a word from Browning's youth in Devonshire causing the day's cooks regular bouts of conjunctivitis, known locally as stove blindness. Priestley dug a chimney through the roof with his ice axe, offering some relief, but soot still quickly covered everyone and everything. A rolled-up penguin skin served to plug the chimney once the cooking for the day ended. No matter how carefully handled, the blubber came to coat every surface and article, spoiling the insulative properties of clothing, coating their sleeping bag fur and matting their hair. While one chump tended the blubber stove, their galley mate brought in the meat for the following day's meals, at first chipping the frozen carcasses with hammer and chisel, later in their stay, thawing the meat in a pannikin suspended above the cooking pot, the meat then being diced with a knife, though the cutting board gradually shrank as experiments in smoking saw it splintered away to nothing, its constituent slivers used as tapers to light pipes, matches being in short supply and a key element of the party's survival. Dickerson, something of a wizard with the stoves, rose at seven o'clock each morning to get the breakfast hoosh, made the previous night, warmed up. One of Campbell's concessions to the situation was that everyone could eat in their sleeping bags and they spent the morning chatting. In the afternoon, those not taking their turn in the galley headed out, weather permitting, to try hunting up more seals. Outdoor parties returned for the evening meal at around 15.30, dinner being served at 16.10. Three pairs of galley mates, Campbell and Abbott, Browning and Dickerson, and Levick and Priestley, took their turns over the smoking stoves and Levick contrived whimsical stories about the origins and mean of each pairing as though they were restaurateurs, helping alleviate the otherwise stultifying boredom of their dark, dank lives. The limited stores from the depot camp added some variety, but so little came ashore with them that each Huntley and Palmer's sledging biscuit constituted a prized possession. Hunger pervaded all moments other than when actually scoffing down a meal. If someone caught a seal, even the bloodied ice from the kill site became part of the meal. Until their bodies acclimated to the high-protein, almost no-carbs diet, all hands experienced regular incontinence, pissing themselves without any warning, whether asleep or awake. Oil tins, one for the wardroom and one for the mess deck, 
Can't mix officers' piss with that of the other ranks, don't you know? Served as gazunders in the sleeping quarters, removing the nighttime need to scramble up the passageway to the latrine, but many surprise micturations continued to catch each of them off guard through April and May. The problem subsided with time, but diarrhoea began afflicting everyone in their turn, Browning suffering from it particularly. The oily seal meat, cooked in briny water melted from the shore ice, caused digestive trouble in all party members, and Browning, having a history of digestive issues, suffered near-constant squits, bearing his discomfort with good-humoured stoicism. A seal caught on the last day of March yielded dozens of undigested fish when gutted, enough for a fried fish dinner and breakfast, a dietary highlight that never repeated through the rest of their stay. Niceties drawn from the supplies brought ashore in January were kept to a strict allowance instituted by Levick, who applied his knowledge of nutrition to try to provide some culinary diversion while making the most of the victuals on hand. Levick's diet sheet warrants recital. But I think I'll leave that to the start of next episode. I'd like to thank Brian Parvo for his company and encouragement, Jim, who got in touch via the Ice Coffee blog to say that he's enjoying the series, and Andy from the Tom Crean Discovery Facebook page, and Liam from the Shackleton Exhibition Facebook page. I've had a bit of correspondence with them recently and they've done a bit of promotion for me, and I'm really grateful. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Mm-hmm.